If you're a guest with us today, I just want to say another very warm and friendly welcome to you. We hope that you'll come again. We, find, we hope that you will find what you're looking for today and um, pray that you'll sense the Spirit of God. And uh, we just want to give you a warm welcome. Pastor Aaron is going to be sharing from his sermon series. This will be the second sermon in the uh, sermon series called uh, From the Ashes. And uh, we have created a little booklet uh, to help you navigate through this uh, with us. And, uh, whoops, sorry. Um, inside, you're going to find an easy reference for the scriptures that we'll be using each week. And you'll see that there are three sections for each week. Thank you. <laughs> three sections. There's one on the top, one in the middle, and one on the bottom. The top part says rows. And as we are sitting in the rows together, as we've come together, we're hoping that you'll use that space while we're sitting together um, during this unique time when during the week we find the time to be together that you'll be able to jot down those things that are significant to you during this hour. Next, in the center of that page, you will see that there's a circle. This is what happens when you're in a life group together. You do life together in a circle of people. You're in a smaller people to mix with those people, to be friends, to study, to serve, to sharpen each other, to lean on each other in the hard times. Um, these are the people that you're going to do life with. And so um, if you've been around a while, you might notice that there's a little bit of a language changed here. Um, over the past couple of years, we've been calling them small groups and home groups and community groups. We're also going to add to that, that language life groups. You'll probably hear that one more. And I used to think that if you were in a life group, that meant you were in it for life and you were stuck in it for life and you could never get out again. It was kind of a captive kind of group. And sometimes that really does happen, and it's a beautiful thing. Other times it does not. Um, so now we're going to use the life group language like this. This is the group, the circle of people that you're going to do life with right now during this season of your life. And if you want to stay in it for life, God bless that. If not, if things change in your life, there's not a problem for you to do something different. But for now, we're going to call it a life group because these are the people you will do life with. Um, speaking of life groups, if you're not hooked into one yet, um, a small group or a home group or whatever it may be, um, there's going to be a chance to get hooked up into that right after this hour. I will meet with whoever's interested right down here in the front, right after service, immediately following service. Uh, meet with me and I'd like to answer your questions um, and get you headed in that direction. Now at the bottom of that page um, that we were talking about, you will see that there's an armchair. So while you're at home, you're reflecting, um, thinking things through, having a private prayer time, um, th this is the time when you can write in that booklet and write your own conclusions, your own questions, your new insights that, that you have come up with as you uh, commune, communicate with God and have your own devotional time. So hopefully that page in three different settings will help you make that scripture and the sermon that you hear come together to make sense for you in your life. Look, it's important for us to be together as a whole. It's really important for us to do life together and it's easier to do that in a bit of a smaller group. You can really care for one another that way. 
And of course, it is really important for you to have that own, your own personal time with God when there's no one else around, or at least you're having a quiet time with God, even if there's chaos all the way around you, but you are having a personal time with God. We hope that this tool will help you. Please bring it back with you every week to church so you can um, actually use it. Uh, there are more just outside that door at the Connections Corner. Don't forget, I'll meet with you right up front if you want to get hooked up with a life group. Thank you. We really do think it's important that you're connected with people in small groups because that's how we get to know one another. That's how we really do um, pray for one another. That's how you, you know, the truth is we also usually are going through things in our lives that are easier to talk about in smaller settings. None of us really want to probably stand up in here and go, hey, I'm really struggling with this. Um, but we might do it in a group of 8 to 10 people or 12 or 14. But we would hope that you would think about joining one. Uh, so, so I have to tell you this morning that when I was a kid, I always wanted to be like a detective or a spy or, or some kind of mystery solver. Like I always thought that would be really cool. Um, in fact, I've read every Sherlock Holmes ever published. Um, maybe that doesn't, maybe that says something else about me, but, but I've read all of them. I, I've been enamored with the James Bond movies. I, I own them all. Uh, I have an unhealthy obsession. And, and in fact, I, I find that I like mysteries of, of every kind, and I try to try to solve them and see if I can figure out what's going on. And, and in fact, I think, um, I always hoped that it wasn't the simplest answer. Right? I wanted to be really complex. In fact, I always kind of hoped that I would be the one to figure out what, what was really going on underneath the surface. And I think actually most people are like this, and right now you may go, I don't know about that, but, but bear with me. You know when you check out, of, check out at a grocery store? There are magazines that sell on the idea that someone can solve a conspiracy theory or some alien had a child with this celebrity. I mean, there are all kinds of things when you check out their National Enquirer. It's how they make money. Uh, in fact, I think people so desperately want some kind of conspiracy or mystery, and I don't know if you, you read about this or not, but, but this one's actually true. There was a study done of all the things that people posted on social media during this last election cycle. 25% of both parties, people who, who consider them Republican or Democrat, 25% of those people posted stories that were not true, but they believed they were. In fact, I still see some of you posting some of that stuff even now. Um, not going to name names. But, but I do want to encourage you to think about how we desperately want mystery. We like intrigue. We like to be right, and we like to prove to other people that we're right and that they are wrong. In fact, I, my wife would tell you that she hates my smartphone because it's smart. Um, but what she hates about it is probably really the person using it because I have a tendency that when we're having a conversation, if I know that an answer has been given that isn't right, isn't true, I will look it up. And I used to tell her she was wrong and here was the proof. I don't do that anymore. I just look smugly over in the corner. I don't say anything. Um, I gloat quietly because the couch isn't very much fun. No, um... But now imagine with me, we go back in time a couple thousand years, and you have bought into a way of life. You believe you know the picture of how God is at work in the world. You believe the way God is going to function. You believe you know what is coming next. You believe you know how God's going to act. And someone comes along, and they tell you there's a new way to live. They tell you that some of what you know is true, but a lot of it needs to be rethought and looked at differently. 
In fact, what if this someone comes along and they begin to gain a following of people and, and they begin teaching their new teachings and you're not so sure you like these new teachings because they change your place, your role, they change where you fit on the spectrum of people. And so most of us would do everything we could to discredit them because what they're saying is changing our world. And we don't like when our world gets turned upside down. We don't like when it's not our plan. We don't like when it goes against what we thought. And this is really the picture of Jesus in, in Luke, what we're going to look at in just a few minutes in Luke chapter 20. But, but what we see is that Jesus is in the temple courts in the Sanhedrin, which is the, the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law, these scribes, they, they gather together and they kind of run the, the temple. They're the temple court, the Sanhedrin. They're in charge of all this place. And Jesus begins saying things that they don't like. In fact, he begins to say things like this, that the temple itself doesn't really matter. That God's presence isn't in one particular place, that it can be anywhere, that you don't have to feel like you're stuck, that, that God goes everywhere. In fact, they're, they're, that it's just stones. It's just a building. And it's wrecking their understanding. In fact, he goes on to say, in fact, it's going to be torn down and in three days it'll be rebuilt. And and they wanted to kill him for that alone, that statement, because it had taken decades to build this place. I mean, it was impressive. And so what we begin to see is that, that Jesus is speaking into their world, saying, you, you've begun to idolize this place and not, not know my father. You bought into some kind of idea, but I want to, to change your systems. And, and God has always called his people to be a blessing to the world, and he's not bound by the boundaries that you put on him. And the more they heard this kind of language, the more they got angry and the more they wanted to do something about it because they had bought into this idea of, of kind of like a country club. That, that we have certain practices and things that we do here and if you don't want to comply to our rules, then you can't be a part. And that's always been a temptation for the church. It isn't that there aren't practices of the church or of God's people, but, but sometimes we've made rules out of things that shouldn't really matter. And Jesus says, don't you remember? Don't you remember what God said to Abraham, our forefather, the guy that, that came before us? I mean, do you remember this, this text from Genesis chapter 12? And here's what it says. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. I mean, see, what, what God had said to Abraham a long time ago, long before Jesus hits the picture, he said, listen, here, here's what you need to know. Abraham, I'm, I'm going to make you great. I'm going to make your family great. I'm going to do something. You, you and your wife are really, really old, but we're going to give you kids. And your kids are going to radically change the world. You are going to be a part of this blessing to the world, this idea that all people will know me through you. And so we hear this story, and it kind of goes back and forth, and eventually the Israelites find themselves enslaved in Egypt, and, and Moses leads them out, and they wander in the wilderness, and they get to the promised land, and it, it it's got everything that they've ever wanted. It's got vineyards that they didn't work for, has orchards that they didn't plant, has all this stuff, but there are a bunch of really big people there, and so they freak out. And they go, oh, we can't go there. And so they wandered for 40 more years because they were too scared to take the next steps that God was calling them to. And in fact, after that, then we see this, this they finally get in the promised land, and they're there, and they, and they say, okay, well, well um, you know, this is really cool and all, and God, you're doing some cool stuff among us, but, but we would really like a king because everybody else has one. We want what everybody else has. And, and God says, no, no, you don't, you don't really want a king because April 15th comes around every year and they're going to tax you. you. You don't really want a king because, because they're going to send your sons to war. You, you don't really want a king because I, I'm your king. 
And they keep arguing back and forth with God, and finally they can have a king. And if Saul is the first king, and he looks like a king, and he acts like a king, you begin to see that Saul kind of isn't that good of a king. And then David's next, and it says he's a man after God's own heart, and, and yet he does some really bad things. He confesses and repents. That's what separates him and Saul. And then Solomon comes, and we think, well, finally, here's a good king. I mean, he's got, David was a good example as his dad, but, but God has said some things to the Israelites. He said, now, I don't want you to be like the Egyptians. I don't want you to store up chariots and war horses, and, and I don't want you to, to have slaves, and so Solomon has slaves, and in fact, he's like a Middle East arms dealer, um, and he, he hoards wealth. I mean, Solomon becomes the opposite of what God called his people to be, and he really wasn't that good of a leader, because at his death, the kingdom was put, split in two, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, and so these people keep coming in and conquering them over and over again, and, and God keeps raising up leaders. He calls them prophets, and they come, and they speak to God's people, and they say, hey, listen, you're living into bad stories again. You're going in the wrong direction. Will you just, will you just turn and go this way? And so they would for a while. You know, we kind of like our own direction. And they would, they would create an idol out of something else in their life that they thought was what they wanted, and it wouldn't be following after God. And so then they would be wandering a different way. And it wasn't necessarily idols made of gold and stone, but it was just this idea that, that they knew better than the direction God was leading. And so eventually, out of this comes a new prophet, a guy named John, John the Baptist. And John comes, and he, he begins saying some new things to these people, and his long line of prophets, and what they kept doing to prophets was kind of killing them. <laughs> killing them or, or kicking them out of town, that's kind of what they did. And John comes, and he says, listen, there's this guy coming, and he is so great. I mean, he's so holy, he's so amazing, that I can't even hold his sandals, which are filthy, because I don't deserve to touch them. In fact, he's going to change the world. He's the one that the scriptures call us to. He's the one that will come and save God's people, that will redeem us and restore us and make us new. He'll usher in God's kingdom in a way that the world has never seen before. And he's coming. In fact, there he is. And his name is Jesus. And John says this, which, which goes against everything the Sanhedrin believed. I must become less. He must become more. And this is where we pick up the story today from Luke chapter 20. If you want to stand as we read from Luke chapter 20, um, we're going to read the first, first 26 verses. It's a little bit long, but I know you, you lost an hour of sleep, and I don't want you to fall asleep while I read this. And so here's what Luke writes, and Luke was a doctor who wanted to, to solve mysteries. He wanted to make sure there were no mysteries, and so here are the words of Luke. One day as he was teaching the people in the temple courts and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the teachers of the law together with the elders, came up to him. Him is Jesus. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? He replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us, because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, we don't know where it was from. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. He went on to tell the people this parable. And a parable is just a story. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of their vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. 
Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I'll send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He'll come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, may this never be. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, And what is the meaning of that which is written, The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be honest. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity and said to them, Show me a denarius, whose portrait and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, Then give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him on what he had said there in public, and astonished by his answer, they became silent. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. So this story begins with people trying to trap Jesus. They wanted to, to not unravel a mystery, but they wanted to entrap him and, and tried that. And so Jesus answers their question, so, so are you of God or not? But what authority do this? Because if he says, I, I do this out of God's authority, that I that I'm his son, then they're going to arrest him for blasphemy, and they're going to have him killed, and, and that'll be it. But it's not yet time for that, so Jesus' response to them is, well, let me ask you a question. John, John who was executed, John who, who many believe was a prophet, um, by what authority did he do the stuff he did? And see, they know they're trapped when he asks this question, because if they say, well, John was, was just human, then the crowd, the mob, will probably stone them and kill them. I don't know if you've noticed this, but whenever mobs gather in any generation, the mob is usually wrong. And so then they go, well, we can't say that because we don't really want to die. But if we say John's was of God, and then John, we all know, kept pointing to Jesus saying this was the one who was to come. And then we're acknowledging that he's the son of God. So, so they say, well, we don't know. Just another non-answer. And Jesus says, well, then I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> If you want to answer my question, I'm not answering yours. In fact, let me tell you a story. This guy had a bunch of property. He had a, he had a vineyard. But he didn't really want to farm it. He wanted to, to let others farm it for him. I have a good friend who farms about 3,000 acres, and, and he only owns about 500 of them, and the rest he leases like this. And so his, his people he rents from, he gives a percentage of the crop every year to them, and it's their payment for him using their land. It's no different in this day. Lots of times people would own land and, and you would lease the land. You would be a tenant farmer. You, you would give a portion of your crop to the person that you own the land, who owned the land. And so, so these farmers have, have got land from this landowner and, and the time for harvest comes. And, and so he sends, sends his servants to go get the crop. And the tenants are like, if we don't give them to this, we can keep more. So let's just kick them out. We're not going to pay. The owner's not here. 
So they don't pay. It happens three times. And, and he says, well, I'll send my son, right? I love my son. I mean, he is the representation of me. They'll have to do what he wants. Wrong, right? They kill him. So what Jesus is saying that these people would have caught is the Sanhedrin represents the leaders and the people of Israel. And so they, they're the tenant farmers, right? They were given this crop to be a blessing to the world. They were, they were to share who God was and the way God really does love people and he doesn't favor one group over the other. Instead, they bought into a new system which was all about them. And so as the prophets came, they kicked the prophets out. They knew where the story was going. And Jesus is saying to them, without saying to them, I'm the son he sent. And I know what you're trying to do to me. In fact, you're probably going to be successful, but don't worry. Because here, let me tell you some words the prophets shared it's okay. Because God's still going to redeem this world and restore all and fix all that's broken. And so then they know they haven't trapped him there. And so then, then someone else comes and they try to trap him again. I mean, they're, they're really working hard at this. And they say, so we've got this money, this denarius, this Roman money. Should we pay taxes or not? Now, now on the money, it says Caesar is Lord. On the money, it says this is... This is what it means. But he wants to say to us, well, that's fine, but whose who's inscription? Caesar? Okay, well then give to Caesar what's Caesar's. If you're using Caesar's money, pay your taxes. And he asked them this question, are, are you giving to God what's his? Are you hoarding it for yourself? I mean, this leaves us with some questions to ask in terms of where we fall in the, in the tenant farmer story. I mean, are, the questions we have to answer are, are, are we taking care of our family? Are we loving sacrificially and selflessly for, for our own families? Are we doing that for others? Because that's a part of what it means to be part of God's people. In fact, are we investing in the next generation? Because if we're not, then we're not faithful at all. He's really trying to get us, what, what are we focused on? Our own desire, our own stuff, our own need, our own once, or are we looking at what God is calling us to, which is greater than ourselves? I mean, Jesus asks questions and he tells stories because he wants our hearts. He wants to know what drives us, what pushes us to be who we are. What is that, that, that behind everything that we do? What is the driving force of our life? Is it our own ambition? Is there our own need to be needed? Or is it to help people know that God loves them? When N.T. Wright summarizes this whole passage, he gives this little line I think is important for us. He says, Underneath the debate stands a darker theme. The accusers have failed this time, but Jesus knows and Luke's readers know they will soon succeed. The leading Jews are going to hand over to Caesar not only the coin that bears his image and his false title, Son of God, but the human being who truly bears God's image and who truly bears that title. But in that act, they're unwittingly offering to God the one stamped with the mark of self-giving love. The cross itself was taken into both Caesar's purposes and God's. Caesar's favorite weapon, the cross, becomes God's chosen instrument of salvation. I don't know that we can comprehend how really cool this actually is. I mean, the cross, which would have looked a lot more like the one behind me than that one. The cross symbolized despair. It marked you as a traitor to Rome. It was a symbol of disgrace, of shame. 
is a symbol of death. But Jesus flipped that on its head, and the cross becomes the place of God's love. Think about it for a minute. Some of you are probably wearing a cross around your neck even right now. You'll notice buildings as you drive through different communities that have it mounted on the side. In people's homes and living rooms, you'll see it hanging on the wall. They don't do it to remember Caesar. Although that's who originated this. They do it to remember Jesus. And the symbol that marked death, the symbol that marked the opposite of life, the symbol that marked shame and despair becomes a symbol of life-giving love. And so we're left answering and asking these questions, kind of at the end of all these stories Jesus is telling. are, Are we the tenant farmers who keep pushing away the prophets of God, who couldn't push away people who call us to more? because it doesn't fit our narrative and our story and our own life that we want? Or are we the ones that at the end of our lives, God says to us, well done, good and faithful servant? Are we truly living out this idea that God loves us so much that we're not trying to make it a mystery? We're trying to, to not trap people not trying to to cover anything in our lives, but we're trying to uncover the reality that we live into God's future in the present, which is defined by life-giving, radical, selfless love. It becomes for us a thing that gives life. It becomes for us this new way of living. It becomes for us recognizing the cross. This symbol of death becomes a symbol of life, and then we begin to tell new stories with how we live. And so I I've been reading this book called Growing Young. And, and what the premise of this book is this, that it's, it's, it's a study that they've gone around the whole country and, and um, there were thousands of churches they looked at and, and they narrowed it to a few hundred. And, and basically what they're looking at are churches that they're doing an, a phenomenal job of reaching the next generation. Churches where they're growing young because if a church is growing old, then it's dying. And that's not what churches are supposed to do. So let's go the opposite. Uh, so this is a story from one of, their, from one of the churches they researched. One of the teenagers in our study, Isabella, was changed because 50 years ago, her church decided to live a new story. In the 1960s, this southern church was on the brink of shutting its doors, but instead of going dormant, the congregation resolved to grow young. The church recruited Roger, a new senior pastor who valued young people and their families. Roger emphasized safe and appealing facilities for children, also hired a staff specifically devoted to children, teenagers, and their parents. Under Roger's leadership, the church involved children— senior adults, and everyone in between in local and global intergenerational mission trips. The congregation worked together to help young people feel included and represented across all departments of the church. It was hard work, but eventually that effort led to growth, as well as a long-term commitment to prioritize young people. Fast forward to 2014, Isabella, a high school sophomore, found she had no place to go. Kicked out of her house by her drug-addicted mom, Isabella ended up wandering the streets of her town looking for someplace safe to spend the night. Desperate, Isabella remembered Dale and Kathy, a couple who had already welcomed a homeless classmate of Isabella named Emily into their home. Isabella didn't know that Dale and Kathy followed Christ, or that the couple was part of this church with a 50-year legacy of living out Scripture's mandate to care for all young people, including orphans. All Isabella knew was that Dale and Kathy had already said yes to Emily. If she was lucky, they would accept Isabella also. 
Dale and Kathy were overwhelmed with Emily, self-employed and strapped financially. They felt stretched thin in every way, but they knew Isabella needed a family and had a strong hunch that they could be family for her. It wasn't all sweetness and light. Far from it. Isabella could be moody, angry, and downright mean. Dale and Kathy knew this was normal teenage rebellion on steroids thanks to Isabella's turbulent childhood. They were committed to loving her unconditionally, but the slam doors and sulking didn't make it easy. Isabella certainly wasn't excited about attending the church's worship services with her new family. Hank, the youth pastor, recalled that on Isabella's first Sunday morning in youth group, she was, quote, pretty dark thundercloud, end quote. Seeing Isabella standing in the back, one of the youth leaders, Tori, approached and started a conversation, or rather, tried to start a conversation. Isabella responded to her questions with the shortest answers possible. If you've ever tried to talk to a surly teenager, you know what we mean. At the end of that morning, Tori told Isabella, I hope you come back next week. Arms crossed, Isabella mumbled, I probably will, because my new parents will make me. Isabella's grumpiness would have been too much for many leaders, but not Tori. Every week that Isabella was forced to come to church with Dale and Kathy, Tori tried to start a conversation. Eventually, Isabella's responses went from a few words to a few sentences and then a few stories. Isabella loved to play guitar, so Tori invited her to join the youth ministry's worship team. Since Dale, Isabella's adoptive dad, was also a musician, he and Isabella would practice together in the evenings at home. Despite their financial challenges, Dale would take time off work to watch Isabella rehearse and play at church. A few months later, during a youth group retreat, Isabella pulled Tori aside and confessed, I feel dirty, and like something is missing in my life. Isabella shared more with Tori about her sexual promiscuity as well as how she had been cutting herself to try to relieve some of her pain. Wide-eyed, Tori responded, Would you like to trust Christ and experience his love? Isabella broke down in tears. That's all I want. After months of being loved by a new family and church that didn't abandon her, Isabella decided she was ready to follow Jesus. According to Hank, Isabella went from being a dark, scowling thundercloud to telling everyone she couldn't stop smiling. Isabella remembers that her friends at school noticed they were a bit weirded out by the new me. She stopped cutting and developed healthier relationships with guys. When our team visited this church and met Isabella, she told us with tears in her eyes, one of the families here took me in and adopted me. You have to understand how loving this church is. This church has changed my life. 17-year-old Isabella was changed by Roger, the senior pastor she never met, but who God used to change the trajectory of the church 50 years ago, which eventually inspired Dale and Kathy, two, quote, regular, end quote, church members who realized they couldn't turn away a young person who needed love and a safe place, a decision that connected Isabella to Hank and Tori, two church leaders who didn't give up on Isabella and helped her experience the embrace of a loving God who doesn't give up on anyone. Isabel was changed because of a team of adults, adults who played different roles in her life and her church. Just as young people need a team of adults in no, quote, bright spot, end quote, church, did we find one person who was the sole spark that helped the congregation grow young. Growing young takes everyone, always. See, here's what I've come to believe. If you know Jesus... If you know the one that took the symbol of death and made it the symbol of life, that your life is radically changed and turned upside down. 
that it gives new purpose in life, that it, that it reorients you to a way of living that didn't make sense before, but begins to make sense because you know Jesus. See, I think sometimes in life we've made it this great mystery that we're trying to solve. We can't figure it out. It, it's hard. It's complex. We're trying to read behind the lines and figure out what's next and figure out where we need to go, and we're not sure if it's a conspiracy or what's going on, but I want to make it as simple as I can today. My life's conviction is that if we come to know Jesus, if we choose to recognize that maybe, maybe we feel dirty, maybe we feel broken, maybe we feel like we're a mess, maybe we feel like we've got it all together, but when we come to know Jesus and we say, okay, I don't get it all the way, but I know somehow this symbol that represented death and destruction and chaos and shame, it became a symbol of pride and life and hope, and so I, I'm in. I want to follow you with my life. I want to give you my life. And what he reminds us in the stories that like we read today is that sometimes if we're not careful, we, we lose sight. We, we create idols of new things. We create idols of, of whatever it is in our life, of, of models of service or buildings or families. We create idols of new things that separate us from God about our own need. But what God wants to say to us today is this, through my son who I sent to you, I love you. And I want you to know me. And this is not a mystery to be unraveled or to be solved. It's why you were created. So that you could know me and I could know you. And you come to know me through my son who is the representation of my love. My son whom I love. Who I've sent for you. And I want you to know him today. This morning the praise team is going to come and they're going to Lead us in a song in which we sing the words Hosanna, which means God save us. And so I want to say this morning that, that maybe if you're not sure about this whole God thing, if you're not really sure about Jesus, if you're not sure about whether you want to follow or not, my, my challenge is this, that maybe today you just say yes. And maybe today you feel like Isabella and you're not so sure, but you know something isn't quite right. And, and, and you just want to, do you want to follow Jesus? Maybe, maybe today you need to say, it's all I want. And maybe today you find yourself in a position where, where you've, you've kind of done that a long time ago, but maybe you need to, to say, you know, I'm not so sure my priorities are right. I'm not sure, so sure it's become from primary. I think, I think I've become like some of those people in the Sanhedrin. It's, it's probably more about me when I want than it is about him. And maybe today you need to say yes to him in that way. And maybe, maybe, maybe this is one of us as well. Today, there's something in us that's, that's wandered away. We have something we need to confess or lay down and, and say, okay, I, you can have this. I, I've been holding on to it far too long. But I really do believe that, that God gives new life, that, that somehow this cross that was the symbol of death is now the symbol of new life, and I want this new life in me. I want it to be renewed. I want it to be now. And, and not only do we believe that Jesus died for us, but somehow, beyond our imagination, this, this is the only thing I'll say is a mystery, that somehow God is present with us in his spirit. And he comes to us and he says, you are mine and I am yours and I am present with you. And maybe today you just need to know that God wants to... to to be present in your life in such a way that your heart is radically transformed and it's defined by this radical, selfless, life-giving love. And so this morning, as we, as we sing and as I pray, 
We think sometimes one of the hardest things to do in faith is to step out in faith and to take that one step forward. But, but today, as, as I pray and as we sing, I'll invite you to come and to say to God, you're, you're mine and I'm yours. And I'll ask you the same question that Isabella was asked by Tori. Do you want to know Jesus? And this morning, if that's you, or you need to lay something down and let go of, or this morning you just need to renew your heart with God. As I you can come to my right, and, and we'll leave you alone, and you can just come pray. Or you can come to my left, and you can come pray, and someone will come pray with you. But I'd like you to stand with me together this morning and know that Jesus comes and he says to us, you are mine and I am yours. And death no longer has to reign, but life comes through me. So as I pray and as we sing, if you'd like to come and publicly say to God, I am yours and you are mine, then I invite you to come forward as we pray and sing. Father, we thank you this morning for this time together for the way that you continue to be with us. And as we sing these words, Hosanna, which just means God save us, that we recognize that we need to lay down the things that hinder us and hold us back and the things that keep us from truly knowing you. What Jesus comes, he says to those in the Sanhedrin, he says it really brokenhearted. Don't you know? I don't want my people to be so defined by God's love that they're investing in others in selfless, life-giving ways. Don't you know that I want the next generation to know God's love? Don't you know that I love you? Don't you know that I want you to follow me? To give your life to something more, something greater than yourself. And so I know my prayer for us this morning is that that would define our church. It would be defined by empowering engaging those who don't yet know Jesus and that we would make decisions with that in mind, not with our own personal preferences or desires, but for you to be made more and more known to those around us. For love to win. For love to be what defined us. For us to remember that the cross is now no longer a symbol of shame and death, but it's a symbol of hope and life. And ultimately the love of God. So we pray all these things this morning. And if there's someone who senses God at work in their life, they know they need to say yes to him today, that, that we would say yes to you, Father. That we would say yes to your son. And we'd say yes to your love. We pray this all in your son, Jesus' name. Amen. If you want to come as we sing, I'd encourage you to come and kneel and pray.